Amen. And kids, as you start to make your way, our kids will make their way to their class. And parents, a couple different spots we're trying to put together over in this back corner on my back right is a little area we're opening it up. So if you're here and your kids are in here and you need a little overflow space to help them wiggle around, that'll be there. And then we're going to put, put a cry room uh, out in the lobby. We don't have the speaker there yet, but we will so you can have a place uh, to go for cry room, and then we'll have a speaker that we run in there so you can uh, stay connected to what we're doing in here. But for this Sunday morning, we're in Ephesians. So since June, we've been walking through Ephesians, and we found our way in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. And our theme this morning is work. So we're talking about work. So that might sound like bad news to you. You might think, I work all week. I don't want to come here on Sunday morning and think about work. But uh, our understanding of and experience of work is one of the things that will shape your life more than almost anything else. I mean, for better or worse, you're going to spend a third of your life at least working for some people, work is an all-consuming obsession. For other people, it's the, um, the thing more than any other they try and get out of. And uh, we have all types of different experiences and interactions with work. So the 2001 movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Now that movie is a... Uh, it's an, um, the Coen brothers wrote it as an American version of The Odyssey. So the Odyssey, the great Greek uh, epic, and it's kind of our American, they're trying to be, our American epic. And what's interesting is it opens up, the opening scene, when they're rolling the credits, is uh, they're on the chain gang working, and the song in the background is the song, The Big Rock Candy Mountain. And this song is, uh, it was written in 1928, and it was called a, uh, it's a, a hillbilly paradise song. So if you're on our email list, I sent it out yesterday, so you can kind of click on the YouTube link and listen to the song. But it's, it's painting a very unique picture of a certain understanding of paradise. So in this, in this song, there are hens that lay soft-boiled eggs. There are cigarette trees. There are policemen that have wooden legs. There's watchdogs that have rubber teeth. There's streams of alcohol and a lake of stew with whiskey, too. And then there's this huge rock candy mountain where you can chip off and eat uh, candy all day. There are no tools, so there's no shovels, there's no axes, there's no picks, so there's no uh, instruments of, of work. And there you get to sleep all day, and the climactic line of the song is we're going to hang the jerk who invented work. So whoever invented work, that jerk, we're going to hang him. And, uh, and you think about that for a second. So that presents a certain picture of an idea of what paradise is like. So there's no work. And then there's a certain anger. But why do we have to do this? Whose idea was this anyway? Where did this come from? And if you think about it, if they were really going to hang the jerk who invented work, whose neck would you put the noose on? Whose neck would get the noose? And one of the things, we just live in a world where we have confusion about what work is. We have, uh, we're conflicted about how we do it, how we should do it. Uh, there's probably few things in the history of humanity that are so rife for 
exploitation. So you have whole economies that were built on slave labor, where someone was living off the work of another. But then you have whole socialistic versions where someone is living off the work of another. Or you can have capitalistic versions where someone is living off the work of another. So this incredible um, picture or confusion and corruption is, is all around us. And then the picture that song paints is one picture. But when we go to the Bible, Genesis 1, Ephesians 6, they paint a very different picture for us for what work is. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is going to sing a very different song about what work is and what it could be. So our question this morning is, all right, how do we think about work? Can, can work be redeemed? Or do we just have to wait and try and hang the jerk who invented work? Can it be redeemed? And so we're going to look at three things. I want us to look at God at work, and then grief in work, and then grace for work. So three things, God at work, grief in work, and grace for work. And uh, really, we'll get to Ephesians 6, but the first thing we have to do is lay the two groundwork, the, the, the prerequisites, the groundwork is God at work and grief in before we can see. Because what Paul does in Ephesians 6 is he shows this remarkable display of what a home and what, in essence, a job looks like when you have people who are submitting to one another, who are transformed by the Spirit, they're, they're Spirit-filled, and so what is their life and home and work like? So let's look first at, uh, first I just want you to think about God at work, and to this you have to kind of take your mind back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And how did all of this begin? Where did work start? Is it a curse is it something good? And one of the fascinating things is you just read through the Bible and you look and see what occupations or what jobs does God do? What work does he do? I mean, Genesis chapter 1 gives you this incredible image of God as creator who's almost like executive general and CEO of the cosmos, and he just starts to speak and things happen. So he's the kind of boss who speaks and things come into being and they happen. And you see this incredible movement of six days he speaks and works and then rests on the seventh. And then on chapter two, it moves you down where he's not just kind of this uh, elevated, exalted CEO. In chapter two, he comes down and it gives you another picture of how he works. And you actually see God getting in the dirt, him coming down and getting dirt under his fingernails and forming man from the dirt of the ground and planting a garden and, and taking care of it. So you see him, he digs, he forms, he breathes, he plants, he places. And uh, there's a garden in Eden. So Eden is actually larger territory, and there's a garden, and he plants a man there to expand the garden. And then you kind of walk through. It's, uh, you can kind of do a biblical theology where just walk through the Bible. And what are the, the images that God takes on himself as a worker? In Job, it talks about how God is the maker. He's a maker. He makes things. And one of the first lines of the Apostles' Creed is, we believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. So he's a maker. You see in Job and Proverbs and Isaiah. And then all these different range of occupations. Like one of the most precious psalms is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He's a shepherd. 
Or in Isaiah, all through it talks about how he's the potter and he takes the clay. Or he's the builder in Psalm 120. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. He's a construction worker who's building things. But one of the ones he used more than any other is the farmer, the gardener. He's a, he's a farmer. And what I find interesting is you look at all these different categories, you can't kind of gender stereotype what you might think the kind of work that God does. God's into crocheting. He knits. You know, he knit me together in my mother's womb. So he knits. He weaves like he weaves history, like he weaves a basket. He's a clothes maker. He makes apparel. You know, the very first apparel line, when Adam and Eve sinned, God made them clothes. So I don't know what brand it was, but... So he's a clothes maker, but he's a gardener. Uh, probably the most common image, though, is the image of a farmer. So if you ever spin around a lot of farmers, this is the image that God takes upon himself to describe his work more than any other. And you see, he's the person who prepares the soil, who sows, who plants the seeds, who tends them, who waters them, who prunes them as they grow, who reaps the harvest, who binds it, who places it in the storehouse. So he's the farmer. And what's so fascinating about Genesis 1 and 2 and then kind of the history of how God takes on this work is he is bringing dignity to manual labor. In every single cultural context, there's this bifurcation. There's a, a split between kind of manual work and intellectual work. So in the world that Moses is writing, Genesis chapter 1, you had the manual labor that was for the slaves, and then you had the intellectual labor that was for the Egyptians, the people worthy of freedom. And those type of distinctions have been all throughout history. And what's so fascinating is God is taking on himself to say, I get my hands dirty. I'm the one who does the manual labor. Like the Babylonian creation myth was that the reason why the gods created man is because they created the earth and realized it was hard to maintain and they didn't want to do it. So they needed somebody to do it for them. And so it comes in and says something very different. So what is this? It's humanizing this labor. So we split these things. You have blue-collar, white-collar work. You have manual, intellectual work. And he's dignifying all of this labor. So there's no work that can't find its dignity in him. And it's worth thinking about. You know, some of the things he talks about that he's, he, uh, he cleans. You know, if you just think about our organizations and the way we kind of put an occupational hierarchy of work, so, like, you could take two industries, the hospital industry or the hospitality industry. And kind of go through, you know, your hospital, you have, you know, the administration and different people on top. And then you kind of go all the way down. At a certain level, you know, there's the people who change out the catheters and clean the bedpans. And you probably don't see too many, like, chief of, head of surgery changing soiled sheets in either industry. But if you think about it, what happens to a place if you don't have soiled sheets that are changed? Nothing good. I mean, just think about your own house. If you don't have somebody who will clean the kitchen, do you know what's going to happen to you? You'll die. You will eventually die if you don't clean a kitchen ever. There is no telling what type of microbes and, and things are going to grow, and eventually they'll like attack you, and you will die. So it is literally a matter of life and death. Do you have someone who cleans? 
And one of the things the Bible does is it dignifies all of these works because it makes it godlike. These are the type of things that God does himself. It turns all of the ordinary into important. So your house cleaning, this is a matter of life and death. So that's going to motivate me to help clean our house. And then what he does is he takes man and he puts him to cultivate and to keep And that's man's job, put in there, cultivate, keep these things. And this paradigm he gives, I think gardening or farming is a good paradigm for all of work. What he does is uh, Adam doesn't destroy the garden. He doesn't exploit it, but it's his job to creatively work with it so it flourishes. It thrives. That's the goal. I'm going to book recommendation on this. One of my favorite books is Tim Keller, Every Good Endeavor. And he defines kind of godly work this way. We are rearranging the raw material of a particular domain to draw out its potential for flourishing for everyone. So you're, you're taking raw material in a certain domain, and then you're drawing out its potential so those can flourish because of it or in it. So you don't destroy it, but you develop it. So think about just different things like music. What are you doing when you make music? You're taking the raw material of sound and you know, vibrations, and then you're reforming them so that they bring people life and joy and meaning. You take construction. What are you doing? Taking the raw materials of the earth, and you're reforming them in such a way that give people dwellings and places of safety and creating homes and businesses and things like that. Take writing. You're taking the raw material of our words and language and reforming them in such a way where you have stories and communication and any of these things. So it's worth thinking about. All right, how in my occupation and what I do, how do what raw materials can I take and then reform for flourishing? It's like in education. You're taking the raw materials of of people's minds, and you're trying to drive out the darkness of ignorance and reform them so that they can flourish. I mean, in one sense, education is doing the godly task of helping people love the Lord their God with all their mind. One of the things we're called to do to live fully. Or think about other occupations. What does it mean to do that in your work? And you know, one of the callings that all, not just all Christians, but all people have is to work in such a way that glorifies God. That brings glory. And when we think about what does it mean to work in a way that glorifies him, we often think that it's a matter of ethics or excellence. So God's glorified with ethics, just doing the right thing, like not embezzling, that kind of thing. That's good. You should not do that. That's Okay, that's, that's a starting point. And then, all right, then we'll do our work with excellence. God's glorified when we do it well. That's good. That's also something else that we should do. Try to do, do it well. But then there's something else that has to happen. In order to really glorify God, God's glory, what it means to glorify Him is His divinity is on display. So glory is God's divinity on display. And in every arena, every field, there's some aspect of God's divinity that is meant to be displayed in that arena. So like in the arena of law, your job in the context of law is not just to uh, advocate for your client. Your job is to display something of God's justice. God is a God of justice, and law is about displaying that. 
That's true for every single arena. In the you know, artistic arena, it's displaying something of God's creativity and finance. It's taking kind of the raw materials of capital and, and bringing about fruitfulness so people can thrive. Every arena, there's something. So God creates the domains... And then he puts people in there so that they'll flourish. And I think when you really get at what the Bible is saying about work, it gives this beautiful picture of what it is and what it should be. And then the question is, well, why? How did we get to the point where we want to hang the jerk who invented work? If it was really invented to be this way, why is it not? Because I don't think anybody who's lived or had any job at all, ever, uh, could say, all right, there's something that's broken here. So where did the grief come in? And so our grief in work happens in Genesis 3, because once sin comes in, because the story of the Bible, story of the world, is God's good world, ruined by sin, redeemed by the Son, being recreated by the Holy Spirit. So work was one of those things that was originally created good, but now has been ruined by sin. And when God curses work. Do you remember in Genesis 3, the two things that are going to mark work from now on? It's sweat and thorns. So now it's going to be sweat. We're going to have to work. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult and thorns. Things are going to stick you and prick you and fight against you. And so now it's marked by uh, sweat and thorns. And you can see all throughout, because of the fall... Now two marks. Work was meant for us to flourish, but now because of the fall, we experience frustration and futility. Work is marked by futility and frustration. And I think there's no book that better gets at this than Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. I think what you have in Ecclesiastes is one of Solomon's kind of international gatherings where leaders and heads of state would come from all over uh, the Middle Eastern world. And this is kind of like his, uh, his, his seminar. And he's going to walk them through in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. One of the things is, all right, if life under the sun is all there is, let's just assume this is all we got, this life under the sun there is so many things that just seem pointless. And in chapter 2, he wants to draw them. All right, if life under the sun is all there is, why do we work so hard? Why does it seem to be so futile? Why does it seem to be so much frustration? Listen to what he says in chapter 2, 18. I hated all of my toil, all my labor, in which I toiled under the sun seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me, and who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool, yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This is vanity. So in chapter 1, he talks about he dedicated himself to wisdom to build uh, cities and gardens and do all this incredible, uh, wonderful, world-changing work. And then now he's looking back on his life and saying, what good is this going to be? Like, I build this literal kingdom, and then i got to hand it off to somebody. And who knows? He might be a total bozo. Now, Solomon's talking about his son. So he might be a total bozo. I hand it to him, and he's going to ruin everything I've done. It's all futile. Is, there's nothing. Is it going to last? So this is all vanity, vanity. And I think anyone who ever tried to build something can sympathize with that sense. We all know there's an element of frustration and futility here. And so in one sense, I think uh, Solomon sounds like he's agreeing with those who will say, all right, this is pointless. 
we got to hang the jerk who invented work. Why is this happening? But then we skip over to our text this morning, and we're in Ephesians chapter 6, and you look here, and Paul seems to be striking a different note. So kind of the question is, all right, how do we get from the despair in Ecclesiastes to the hope that Paul gives us in Ephesians 6? Let's actually walk through Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, and we'll point out some of the things that grace can then empower in our work, and we'll say, all right, how do we experience that? Because this is a different picture. So let's pick up in verse 5. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will so as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bond or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So what he's saying here is based on your new status, your new identity in Christ, he gives several things to help them deal with any type of work situation they'll find. And what I find interesting, there's a couple things here I just want you to notice. I couldn't couldn't quite lasso my mind around the number of things he was thinking. I think there's five things here, but it wouldn't really press me on it. But just notice the different things that he says, because what he's targeting is he's targeting your attitude and your, your motivation. He's saying one of the gifts that grace will do for you and the Spirit will do is it'll change your whole attitude towards work. And let's look at a couple things he, he, he wants here. The two key words are in verse 5, obey, and then there in verse 7, serve, rendering service. So obey and serve. So the economy of grace is a service-based economy where you obey and you serve, and then the gospel powers this type of attitude. Look at the first thing. You are to obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, isn't that an interesting phrase? How do you obey with fear and trembling? This is a common biblical phrase. So like in Deuteronomy, when Paul, um, Moses talks about the Israelites going into the promised land, he says they'll put the fear and trembling of them on the people of the land. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about, tells us to work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And the idea here is you're, you're supposed to um, engage in this activity with a certain weight, a certain respect. It's not flippant. He tells the Corinthians, or he tells about his ministry when he came to Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, I came to you in much weakness with fear and trembling. So I did my work with fear and trembling, this weight that I was doing something that mattered. It was significant. It wasn't trivial, trite, or flippant. And then he tells them, then I'm going to send Timothy to you. And when Timothy comes, you receive him with fear and trembling. Because this is not trivial, it's not trite. So in one sense, the image of uh, if your conception of work is kind of like if you act like at your office like they do on the show, The Office, then you're, you're missing what Paul is saying here. Work is to be something that's not, that's not trivial, it's not trite, it's not flippant, it's weighty, has certain respect. But then notice the next thing, with sincerity of heart, with a sincere heart. See, for Paul, what grace does is it can purify our motives. It can wash our motives clean 
So we're not doing with any guile or any deceit or any um, kind of base motivations where we're trying to exalt ourselves and push other people down. And this is a hard thing for us to have real sincerity. Think about Mark Twain's quip where he says, in America, sincerity is everything. If you can fake that, you got it made. And uh, sincerity is hard for us. And so he says he can see. He can see the motivation. So you have to examine your own heart. Are you doing these things with a sincere motive? Then look at the third thing. You obey as you would Christ. Your service to them is a reflection of your servant to Christ. Service to Christ. So he's assuming you're obeying Christ, and then you obey your bosses, in essence, that way. And then it's interesting. Notice the fourth thing he says is, not by the way of eye service. It's an interesting word. Paul actually made it up. There's no evidence of this word before this, but it's uh, not doing your work just to impress people. And think about how much of the things we do are for the impression, just to impress people. And maybe not going into an occupation just to impress people. My sister, who's, she's a lawyer now, when she was in law school, one of the things that really kind of shocked her is how many of her classmates had no real care for actual justice. She said, well, why are you here? Well, it's a pathway for a, a socially um, exalted occupation to impress people. I have to because my parents want me to, or I don't know why I'm here. But not doing anything just to impress people. This is hard, also hard for us because you just think about um, in our social media world where everything now is a photo op. Like everything is done for the picture. Somebody was telling me recently they were on this vacation and they had their teenage boys and they really wanted to climb up to kind of this, this hill. And the parents didn't really want them climbing up the mountain. And they were arguing, we're going to climb up this, this mountain. And uh, the dad said, all right, you can climb up, but leave all your phones here. No phones. Ah, what? No, 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 no pictures, no posting. Uh, if you're going to climb up, you're just going to climb it up. And they're like, well, why would we even want to do it if we couldn't post it? And so that's just kind of the world we live in, motivated to be people pleasers, to, to be seen. And uh, there's a superficiality here that Paul is attacking. And it's the same superficiality that Jesus attacks in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is especially true. This is something that all people in religious work should be sensitive to. Because Jesus says, don't practice your righteousness to be seen by people. And if you do, that's your reward. If you're doing it just to be seen so you can have the photo op and people can cheer you, that's it. That's all the reward you get. And he tells them, don't do it just for uh, people-pleasing, eye-pleasing. This is how we try, you know, the, 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 the core sin of the Tower of Babel is we're going to build this thing for us, make our name great. And one of the things here is not just do things to, to be for people pleasing, but it's also to do things in such a way to twist and distort and mislead. I mean, there's a whole way of doing marketing and sales that's designed to mislead people. There's a whole way of doing accounting that's designed to mislead people. I don't know if you ever heard the, I don't, I th think it's a, not a real thing, but there's an apocryphal story, I think, that goes back to the Enron uh, days where the, the CEO asked the CFO, you know, what's our fourth quarter numbers? And the response was, well, what do you want them to be? And 
you know, there's a way to even do accounting, to, to mislead and to deceive. And he says, that's, that's not how we do our work. But notice the, the fifth thing here is you do it as servants of Christ, bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. They're servants of Christ. Do you know what? In the Old Testament, the highest title of honor, the highest honorific title given to any person is, is the Lord's servant. Have you considered Job? There is none like him on the entire earth. Job, my servant. And you have Moses come to the end of his life. says, Moses, the Lord's servant. And I wonder sometimes, like, if Moses came to one of our kind of modern, like, church planning conferences, you know, how would we introduce him? Like, we'd introduce him by, here's someone who studied, you know, graduated mag magnum cum laude from Egyptian University, wrote one of the best-selling books in all of history, one of the most successful generals, and there's never been a catalytic leader to lead a movement quite like this guy. And then, what is his designation in the Bible? The Lord's servant. And it's one of the highest, the highest condemnation or um, the highest accolade that Jesus can give to his people is well done, good and faithful servants. This is the title. And he says, You're servants of the Lord, and the whole goal is to do his will. And this flows because you know something. You know that the Lord will reward you no matter what, whether you're slave or free, and you have the assurance of God's blessing even when you don't know if you'll have um, short-term gain. You know, will obedience good for, be good for me in this moment? He says, it doesn't matter. The Lord's watching. And it's, impossible, it's possible to work really hard and do good work and not have anyone notice. But he says, the Lord is, notice, is noticing. And then with masters, he tells them, the same thing is true of you. There's not a double standard here. This is true of you. You should have these very same attitudes and work wholeheartedly to the Lord because, masters, you're a servant. You're under authority. You're not one over, but you're under. You're under authority. And there's no place here for the abusive intimidation, subjugation that was so popular in the Roman world. And he says, you know that you are under authority and that the Lord shows no partiality. So here... What he's doing for the masters is humanizing their work. So you don't dehumanize those people who are under you. So if you're in a position of authority in your work, it's really worth thinking about. What are the ways that I can humanize my occupation and humanize the people who work with me? So how do you faithfully fulfill these roles? Where do we get the power to actually experience this kind of attitude in work, where we can experience what it's really meant to be. How can we have the grace to empower our work? And I think we go back to the, the theme of our song on the big rock candy mountain. Uh, I guess deep down we know that work is broken and somebody needs to pay. And so the cry is, hang the jerk who invented work. The question well, somebody's got to pay, so who should be hung? Who should actually pay? See, work was originally, it was a blessing, it got turned into a curse. Now, how do we move it from curse back to blessing again? And in order to experience that, you got to go not to the first garden, but to the second garden, where Jesus himself in that garden is performing the work that the Father sent him to do. He had a task 
to accomplish. And then he begins to sweat great drops of blood because he's experiencing the full weight of works. Curse is now on him. And then on the tree, on the cross, what gets placed on his head is the crown of thorns because his work is to be the king. But now he gets put on his head. He bears the weight of the symbolism of works curse. And on the cross, he bears the full weight of the curse of work so we can experience the full redemption of it. And one thing Cynthia was meditating and thinking through last night and has written some lyrics to a song that we'll work on, but just thinking about the marvel that he actually took. So his earthly occupation was carpenter, a stonemason. His earthly, the, the tools of his earthly occupation were wood, nails, hammer, stone. And then he takes the very tools of his occupation, become the tools that bring about his crucifixion, so that he can then redeem and restore the tools of our occupation. His, the tools of his vocation brought about our redemption. He bore the curse so we could experience the blessing so that now the tools of our occupation can play a part in the world's redemption. So now we have tools at our occupation, whatever it is, there's tools that are meant to bring about the flourishing and the redemption of the world. And we can play a small part in that because of what he endured and went through on the cross. And you know, and the way the world works is that in many jobs, you have to work to earn your rest. It's kind of like you start at a job and you get like one day of vacation and then every year you get an extra day. So by the time you've worked 40 years, you get two weeks. You work to earn your rest. But you know, his, it's his work that actually earns our rest, our deep soul rest, so we can rest in his work, so it can transform the way we do ours. So it's his work that redeems ours. So we don't need, actually, we don't need to hang the jerk who invented work. The people who should be hanged are the people who corrupted it. And in small ways, that's all of us. But the beauty of the gospel is that he took our place so we could take his. So as we wrap up, it's worth thinking about now. We'll spend some time closing in prayer and just thinking through. How can my vocation, how can the tools of my vocation help contribute to redemption and the restoration? How can it contribute to God's glory? What aspect in this field um, of his divinity can be displayed. So I really think if you can connect that to what you do week in and week out, that's the way you find meaning and fulfillment in your work. You know, we say, you know, if you want, what, what do you want to do with your life? Find what you're passionate about. Or, you know, the cliche, if you love what you do, you'll never, what is it? If you love your work, you'll never work a day in your life. Or, and that's fine advice. But the way to really transform your life is to connect it to the larger thing that God's doing to see how it connects in the full restoration of all things. How does this display something of his divinity and his glory? Connect it to redemption. So let's pray and ask the Lord to help us do those things.